Well, I am both humbled and honored at the invitation that's been extended to me to speak to you this morning. Um, Dr. Patterson, you did make this a little more difficult than it had to be for me because yesterday after chapel I scrambled. I had planned to preach from Song of Solomon chapter 7 today. And uh, <laughs> no, it, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. When I was sitting in chapel services at, um, excuse me, but I was sitting in chapel services at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wondering what it would take someday to uh, be invited to preach in an environment like this. Uh, let me tell those of you who are wondering the same thing, the answer is not much. Um, <laughs> I have to admit, this is uh, just slightly intimidating. Uh, what is a pastor from a small town in Ohio supposed to say to some of the greatest preachers and the most brilliant theologians in the world? Well, as I wrestled with that question, one thing I know for sure is that I don't have to be anything today other than who I am and what God's called me to be. And Dr. Patterson has certainly given me that freedom and I also know that for thousands of years now, God has chosen to use the foolishness of preaching from men who labored a lifetime in total obscurity to bring hope and to bring help to anybody who would listen to them. And so I come today and I come and have asked the Lord to allow me to be of particular encouragement to a, a, a group of men I know who are here this morning, those of you who are young pastors. As a young pastor in college and a young pastor in seminary, um, I know what it's like to balance the work that you have to do here and the responsibilities that a church calls upon you to do. And I have a, I have a real heart for those of you who are just beginning ministry and who are trying to balance school and pastoring a church. When I accepted the call to, to my first church in central Kentucky, I was 20 years old. I'd never even taught a Sunday school class. And here I am, the pastor of a Baptist church. Now, at the time, I was uh, attending a Baptist college where the faculty was far more interested in J, D, E, and P than they were in J, E, S, U, S. The... Uh, the professors there uh, had other young men preparing like me for ministry. They did not offer a single course on preaching. They did not offer a single course on local church ministry. But one day, my New Testament professor did, not one day, one week, he spent three days of our time teaching us the very helpful practice of transcendental meditation. Now... I know what it's like to be young, to be inexperienced, to have limited resources. And yet I have to tell you as a 20-year-old, I was as passionate to serve those people and as passionate to preach to them as I am today. And so I know what it's like to be where you are and to want to care for those people who have been entrusted to you. And so I'm praying that what I say this morning will especially connect with some of you who are in a similar situation. 
it seemed like the best direction for me to take was just to kind of let you guys in on what um, I'm doing back in Springboro. Um, on Easter Sunday, I began a new study through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it was a good text for that day. We took Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I found that to be a pretty fair Easter text to preach from that day. And the next week, I, I told them, I said, I want you to go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, but I want you to look behind it. I want you to look above it. And I want you to see there that it likely says at the top of the page in your Bible, the gospel according to Mark. I have endeavored for almost 34 years to teach our people the word of God systematically. I believe it's important when I teach them to set the context so they can really understand the book, the way it was written, and by whom it was written. And so I, I, I encouraged them. I said, you can't fully appreciate what we're going to learn until you know the story of the man who wrote the book. Now, I have not forgot where I'm standing today. And I'm familiar with the debate over Mark and authorship. And I know about Q. However, I am just a simple preacher who really does believe that Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, Luke wrote Luke, and John wrote John. And they wrote them at different times, and they wrote them in different places. But they all fit in perfect harmony because they had the same author, and that was the Holy Spirit who superintended each of them. They all tell the story from their unique perspective. But I also know that after those four Gospels were written, no other, no other writing about Jesus was ever accepted by the early church as being authoritative and inspired. It was these four Gospels and no more, and that was the universal affirmation of the early church that these were the true Gospels. It's important for us to remember that no Gospel author identifies himself in his book. Uh, Paul would identify himself at the beginning of a letter. Peter and James, other writers would do that. But none of the Gospel writers identified themselves, including Mark. I've wondered about that, but I realized they wanted the story about Jesus to be about Jesus. And they hid themselves behind the one who alone is worthy of glory. And that's a good lesson for me to remember as a pastor. That whatever I do, I want him to be honored and him to be glorified. And I'll just hide back here and let him do what he wants to do in me and through me. So that way in the end, he's the only one that gets the honor. Guys, it'll be tempting sometimes to want to grab the spotlight and grab the honor. But resist that. Let him have the honor and you will be amazed because he resists the proud, but he gives incredible grace to those who are humble. So let's meet the author. And since he doesn't appear in his gospel, and I know some of you might say, well, he does appear in chapter 14. Well, there's a young man in chapter 14 with an interesting story, but we don't know if that was Mark or not. We can't say we can't say definitively it was him. So we have to go to the first place in the New Testament that we actually see Mark show up. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 12. Because here is where we pick up his story. Now in the first 12 chapters of Acts, the gospel penetrates Judea and Samaria just like Jesus told them that it would in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Peter is the dominant figure in those 12 chapters. But between chapter 12 and chapter 13, we know a major shift takes place. And in chapter 13, the gospel begins to be carried now, not to Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. And Peter's no longer the central person. Paul becomes the central figure. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, it says about that time. 
Now we have to stop for a moment. Because when I read the scripture and I study it and I try to teach it to our folks, there's a question that comes to mind. About what time? Well, that time. Well, what was that time? Well, look at verse 27 in chapter 11. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. I always love to read phrases like that because you all know Antioch was due north of Jerusalem. But you always go down from Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem. And so they went north down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there'd be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so what was the time? It was the time when a famine was headed their way. It was a time when the church at Antioch, a church that was just exploding, a, a church that was, that was so significant that the people in the community began to look at the folks in that church and they said, you guys look like, I don't know, you look like Christians. You look like Christ. Now, Christians almost never called themselves that. Christians almost always called themselves slaves in the New Testament. But these people in the town of Antioch said, you guys look like Christians. And God was doing such an incredible work there that when they heard about the famine that was coming and they knew how difficult it would be on the believers back in Judea, they collected an offering and they sent it down to them or up to them through Barnabas and Saul, their, their leaders, their pastors. About that time, Herod. Herod. Herod Agrippa I, a master politician, uh, who learned quickly that he could be far more successful in ruling this region if he were to curry favor with the Jews. And so he began to formalize his strategy. How can, I, how can I make the Jews like me? How can I really get in on their good side? Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll persecute Christians because those Jews, they hate those Christians. And so he arrested James, the brother of John. He had James, mar James killed. James becomes the first apostle to be martyred. And it was so well received by the Jews, it so pleased them, it says, that he thought, well, if, if they were thrilled for me to, to kill James, how much happier will they be if I, if I arrest Peter and I do the same thing to him? He's their, he's their leader. And so he had Peter arrested. He was taken to prison. He was chained between Roman guards. He was, he was under watch 24 hours a day. I think they feared a jailbreak by the, that time. The, the church numbered tens of thousands, and maybe they thought they would storm the prison and try to break him out. But the Lord didn't, didn't need a mob to storm the prison. He had, a, he had a better plan. Look at chapter 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself. And put on your sandals. 
And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He'd just seen one in chapter 10, so maybe it's happening again. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened to them, opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, And from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many people were gathered together and were praying. And so here's the first time in the New Testament that we come across this man, Mark. John was his Jewish name. Mark was his Gentile name. And at this point in Scripture, he's simply a nondescript individual who is used primarily to distinguish his mother, Mary, from all the other Marys that were tied to the gospel story. It's apparent that the church met often in the house belonging to his mom, making it likely that Peter had been there many times and that Mark knew him well. Well, Finding himself alone in the middle of the street, having just been freed from prison by an angel, Peter decides to head someplace familiar, Mary's house. And after his arrest, we know, we read it in verse 5, the church had gathered to pray for him. Verse 13, we pick up the story. It says, And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. When they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now the... Prayer meeting at Mary's house sounds like most Baptist prayer meetings. They were praying and praying and praying, but they weren't expecting a thing to happen. And when God answered the prayer, they just blew their mind, you know. And poor little Rhoda forgets to open the door for him. Bless her heart. I I told this story to our folks. Um, This really does tell you how old I am. But uh, when I was growing up, my, my mother and grandmother, we lived close to them. And my mother had an old ringer washing machine. Now, some of you can remember that. But there was a tub and you agitated the clothes. But then when they were done, you pulled them out and you ran them through a series, through a couple of, of, of rollers. And, and they wrung the water out of the clothes. Well, I was a little kid, a couple of years old, two or three, and I don't remember it. But, uh, but my mother that day kind of pulled a rota. Um, I was messing around with the clothes, and she was sending something through the ringers, and I had grabbed hold of it, and before she realized it, my arm was in the ringers about up to here. Now, there was a little lever on top that you could touch it, and it would release the rollers and everything, but my mother didn't think about that. There was also a button you could hit that reversed them. And so my mother hit reverse, and she ran my arm back out through the ringers. <laughs> Finally, Peter gets into the house, Uh, tells them the story. And uh, 
at this point, this is all we really know about Mark, that there's a connection to Peter. And we know that's going to play out significantly in the future for him. But at this point, we know nothing else about him. Then his story takes a dramatic turn. Something happens that I don't think he saw coming. Look down in verse 25 here of chapter 12. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. Remember, they had come to bring the offering. And when they had completed their service, bringing Mark with them, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the first indication of his usefulness and his character. Was Mark a preacher? No. Was he an evangelist? No. A pastor? No. An apostle? No. Was he a prophet? No. Was he a leader? No. None of those things. So why would Barnabas and Saul take him back to Antioch? Well, Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 tells us that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. So Barnabas knew him, trusted him. He, he knew something about his talents, about his giftedness. And he suggested to Paul that they bring him along, that he could be helpful on the journey back to Antioch and probably be helpful to them in the ministry there in Antioch when they returned. But little did Mark know when he agreed to return to Antioch or to travel to Antioch with Paul and with Barnabas what was going to be required of him in the days ahead. Chapter 13, verse 1 now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, John Mark, to assist them. He was asked to be their helper. It's the only description we have of him in relationship to the kind of ministry that God ever entrusted to him. That he was someone who assisted, who helped. The missionary journey proved to be a tough ministry. The travel conditions were brutal. The opposition became downright dangerous. And apparently it was just too much for Mark to handle. In chapter 13, verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. He deserted. He defected. And he went back home. Probably wouldn't have been very welcome back in Antioch if he had told them why he was home back there so soon. So he went, he went home. Now what was in Jerusalem? Well, his mother was there. But there was someone else there who ends up playing a key role in the life and the ministry of Mark. And that was Simon Peter. And I, I just kind of like to imagine Mark's first encounter with Peter after he deserted 
Paul and Barnabas. Dr. Rogers, I, I should have told you this when you invited me to preach, Dr. Patterson. Um, when I was at Southern, they were interesting years that these young men cannot appreciate. I signed up for my first preaching class. I went to class the first day. And I remember the professor stood up in front of us and he said, if you young men are here to learn how to preach alliterated outlines like the simple-minded men, like Charles Stanley and Adrian Rogers and those folks, you've come to the wrong class. He says, we're going to look at the real sermonic artists like Fosdick. I left and went to the registrar's office and withdrew. And I have never had a preaching class in my life. But I had a good friend who was traveling with me back and forth to seminary. And he'd bring along a cassette player. And we'd listen to Adrian Rogers. And we'd listen to Bailey Smith. And we'd listen to Charles Stanley. And we'd listen to all these men. And I learned how to preach listening to Dr. Rogers' sermons on cassette tapes. Um, Dr. Rogers used to like to say to those who were listening to him, would you allow me for a few moments to use a little sanctified imagination? And I wonder if we could do that. I can sort of imagine after Mark had been back home for a few days, he probably went kind of slinking to find Peter. And uh, he says, you're not going to believe what I've done. I've blown it. He said, I, I went with Barnabas and Saul, and, and they were headed out taking the gospel across the world. And they invited me to go and help them and assist them. And it got so hard, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. And I left them. And I came home. And I don't know, I don't know what I'll ever do. I don't know how I can ever be used again after having deserted those two men like that in a time when they really needed me. Peter either told him the story or he reminded him of it. I can picture him sitting down there across young Mark saying, Mark, there was a night and tension had filled the air. And we knew something was up. And Jesus told us that he was going to be handed over. And he would be tried and he would be beaten and he would be crucified. And I told Jesus that night that, Jesus, if I have to lay down my life to protect you, I will. And he said, Jesus looked at me and said, Peter, before this night ends, you're going to deny that you even know me. And he said, you know what? That's exactly what I did. And he said, I just want you to know, Mark, that he forgave me. And he restored me, and here I am today. And so don't give up because God hasn't given up on you. And he's never going to. Well, after returning to Jerusalem, Mark disappears for a few years. We just don't hear anything from him at all. And when he does show up again, it's at a place you would least expect to find him. But if we, if we could, let's hit the pause button for just a minute or two. And, and, and leave Mark long enough for me to make a couple of personal observations. This is an interesting year for me, 2016. This year, in July, I'm going to turn 60. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. I'm going to turn 60. It was 50 years ago this month. And I mean it was like the, the 13th or 14th of April. 50 years ago this month, 
that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And Lord willing, if I make it there this November, I will have been the pastor of a Baptist church every single day for 40 years. And so 60 and 50 and 40. And it's just, uh, I guess, led to a great deal of reflection and introspection. And, and so for you guys who are here who are going to be pastoring churches, I, I just wanted to share some observations from, from my experiences. You see, Mark left because I think it was just too hard for him. And I want you to know that ministry is hard. Now, I don't want to discourage you, but if you don't think that serving in a local church is difficult, you just haven't done it long enough yet. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be falsely accused. You will almost never be given the benefit of the doubt and almost always taken for granted. That's just the facts. There will be people through the years that you will invest in, you will love you will spend hours counseling with them or visiting them in the hospital and being there in one crisis after another, and they will leave your church without a word of explanation. You'll think they're just on vacation, and all of a sudden, a few weeks later, you'll think, where have they gone? And somebody will say, oh, didn't you know they're going down to so-and-so church? And you're like, you've got to be kidding me, you know? And then every now and then, one or two of them, not many, but every now and then, one or two of them have enough integrity that they'll come and meet with you and they'll tell you why they're leaving. Now, it's almost always a lame excuse, but at least they meet with you and you're grateful for that. And here's what every one of them say to me. They will say, we're doing this for our children or we're doing this for this reason or that reason, but we want to make sure you know it's not personal. I just want to laugh out loud when they say that to me. I, I, I came to the church that I served two days after I turned 26 years old, and this summer I'll be 60. My whole adult life has been invested in one local church, and believe me, when somebody lives, leaves, I take it very personally. And I'd like to tell you that after 40 years in ministry, I deal with it now much better than I ever have before, but my wife's sitting right there, and I can't lie. Because I don't deal with it any better. It's just hard. And there's a lot about it that's hard. And, and, and some of the good is hard. I mean, I've been there 34 years. And there, there are men there that I, I love like my father. And I buried them. And, uh, and I've watched them suffer. And I'm watching one of them now suffer horribly. 84 years old. But I, I love this man. And it's hard. It's hard. So if you have some thought that this is an easy way to make a living and live your life, please go find something else to do, just about anything else. But I'd also tell you this. Make sure, please, especially in the early years, because this is when you're going to be most prone to this, I think, do not neglect your family. Don't do that. If you're not careful, you'll get so busy being a pastor to your congregation and your community that you'll forget that being a father and a husband is the highest calling God's given you. And so you have got to protect them. You've got to protect them from the unrealistic expectations of the church. You've got to make sure people don't put more on them than, than is reasonable. 
And never put them in a position where they're always competing with your ministry. As much as is possible, make them partners in your ministry. I, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect my youngest son may be watching. Is this being streamed live? I think he's watching. And so I remember my kids all went with me to hospitals and funeral homes and everywhere. And one day he was 12 or 13, and we went to see a man that we knew pretty well. And we got there, and we'd been there a couple minutes. And he says, hey, you want to see my scar? And wham, pulls open his gown and shows us his big incision about that long, you know. And my 13-year-old son was just about ready to pass out, you know. <laughs> but he still remembers that. And so they were always part of what we were doing. And, and I always included them. And, and, uh, and, 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 if, and if you're a young pastor and you want to go to a meeting, and you got like a 3-year-old, I used to take my 3-year-old with me all the time. Because if you get bored or you need to go to the bathroom, you just get him up and take him out. And you tell all your friends later, he had to go out. I'm sorry, you know. And so, I mean, they really can be a help to you, you know. I would, I would encourage you to protect yourself. Set some boundaries. Make sure everybody knows what they are. If I were a young pastor today and I were going to my first church on day one, they would know some things about me. And uh, here's one of the things they would know. As long as I'm your pastor, if I send a text message or an email to any woman in this church about anything related to ministry, either my assistant or my wife will be copied in on that text and that email. Now, I'm just telling you, you better protect yourself. You better set up a lot of rules and a lot of boundaries. We have some and we stick with them and we don't let ourselves be in situations where we're alone with women who aren't our wives and things like that. And if our youth pastor has to drive 20 miles out of his way to drop off a young lady so that she's not the last one he's dropping off, then he has to drive 20 miles out of the way. And so we're just real stringent about that. And if you don't protect yourself, nobody else will. And can I, can I add this? And, and this is, uh, I'm not getting um, anything to make this plug today. But you've got some professors here. I've met two of them now who are incredibly gifted and uh, very gracious who teach counseling. Now, if I were you, I would, I would do everything I could to meet with them, to take their classes, and to learn how, when you get to that church, you can train some godly women to counsel with women because you don't want to be doing that. And so be careful and protect yourself. But I also would make this observation. It is worth it all. I am confident that only heaven will reveal the ways that God in his grace used us in the lives of those we have served. And even though you may not feel, feel appreciated for all the hard work you do, I want to encourage you to love those people who are entrusted to your care and I want you to love them the same way that Jesus loves you. And love all of them like that. Every single one. And over the course of your ministry, you'll have the joy of watching some of those you've impacted live their lives to the glory of God. And if God honors you and allows you to stay planted in one spot like he has me, you'll see a lot of those. Last year, I baptized a little girl, eight years old. I went to the hospital when she was born. She weighed one pound and eight ounces. I remember she would have fit in my hand when she was born. She was so severely disabled that the doctors gave them no hope. 
and once even walked away, came back an hour later expecting to be dead, and she was still very much alive. Now, if you saw that little girl, you would know she has some challenges, but she's as sharp as she can be. She's in school there in a public school where I live. She is sharp as a tack. She's sweet as she can be. She sees me and she hugs me and she loves me. And last year, she accepted Jesus Christ. And after she did, we got ready to baptize her. And her, her parents came to me and they said, will, will you do the baptizing? I've gotten a little lazy and we try to expedite things in the service. So I allow our youth pastor and others on staff to do most of the baptizing now and, and everything. But they wanted me to baptize Is that day. And so I said, sure. And uh, you know what was incredible is I, I got in the waters there with Is. I remember standing in the waters with her daddy. And with her mama, when they were little kids and they had accepted Christ, now here I was baptizing her. It's a good thing. It's a good day when you get to do that. When I, when I tell you it's worth it all, I think about, I think about people like Jeff and Margot. Um, a man from the church and I were out just calling on people, visiting one night. Knocked on the door of a house. I had known the family that lived there previously. They sold it. A new couple moved in. I thought I'll go meet them. They opened the door. The house was absolutely flooded. Pipes had burst. They were in a mess. I said, I'm sorry. Can we help? And they were like, no, we've got it. And I said, can I come back? And they said, sure. Jeff had grown up in Springbrook. I have a local sports hero there. Great, great young man, but not a believer. He'd married Margot, and Margot had grown up in a Christian home, but sort of drifted away. And, and I went back later, and the mess was cleaned up, and they were settled in their home. And and uh, I began to talk with him, build a relationship. wasn't very long. And right there in his family room, I led Jeff to faith in Jesus Christ. And boy, we watched him grow and change. And people in town who knew him were like, wow, look at this guy. And then his job forced him to move to Columbus. And I told Jeff, he'd only been a Christian for a few years. I said, Jeff, I said, when you get there, you better find a church. And I said, I am going to dog you until you do, until you've joined one. And I remember on Sunday afternoons, I'd call, Jeff, where'd you go to church today? And he'd tell me. I said, what'd you think? Well, I didn't really like it. I said, well, a lot of churches in Columbus, find another one. I called him one Sunday afternoon. I said, Jeff, where'd you go to church today? Well, you know, we just kind of slept in today. And I said, Jeff, I swear I will come up there and drag you out of bed myself next Sunday morning <laughs> if you don't get up and go to church. And Jeff and Margo found a church, got involved, strong members there, moved again to North Carolina, Got involved in a church, strong members there. Had to go to Italy for a few years and serve. Got involved in a church, strong members over there. About three weeks ago, Jeff called on the phone. We don't see him or talk to him very often anymore. And he said, I just remember a couple years ago I was there. Patty told me she'd prayed for us about something. He said, I just need y'all to pray for me and for Margo about something. Would you do that? And I said, Jeff, we would. There will be some Jeff and Margos that come along. And I just want to tell you, it's worth it. And it's worth it ultimately, not because you see those, but because you know that in the end, you have the approval of the only one who really matters. But let's finish up Mark's story. Can we do that? Go back to Acts chapter 15. And in verse 36, Acts 15 and verse 36, it says, And after some days... Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. 
Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. Well, it's been a few years since Mark had abandoned Paul and Barnabas. They're ready to begin the second missionary journey and go back and follow up on all the places they had gone the first time. And Barnabas wants to give Mark another chance, but Paul hadn't forgotten his weakness and his cowardice, and he was having nothing to do with them. And verse 38 says, But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them, deserted them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So each man here, the tense tells us, they kept insisting on their own way. And the disagreement between them became so contentious and so sharp that their relationship, their partnership was severed. They'd been serving together for years. And Barnabas takes Mark and... Paul takes Silas, they go in different directions, and Barnabas disappears for about two years, and Mark disappears for about ten. Ten years. I don't see or hear anything from him. And when he does finally show up again, it's just, it's mind-boggling to me where we find him. Now, over the course of his life, we know that the Apostle Paul would be arrested and imprisoned in Rome twice. The first time, he'd be released. The second time, he'd be martyred. And during that first Roman imprisonment, he wrote, he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he wrote Colossians, and he wrote Philemon. And would you want to venture for just a moment a guess at who became Paul's most trusted companion while he was in custody in Rome? Well, go to the book of Colossians and look there at chapter 4 and verse 10. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. The deserter, the defector, has become a fellow worker and a source of comfort to Paul. Now, how could a change of heart like that take place? What transpired to restore the relationship between these two men? Well, it's a great question, but I don't have a clue because it just doesn't tell us. We're not provided with any information about the reconciliation outside the fact that it happened. And it wasn't a temporary thing. How long did it last? Well, we know Paul would write his final letter, 2 Timothy, during that second imprisonment, somewhere around the year 66 or 67 AD. Now, this is about 20 years since Peter was released from prison there in Acts chapter 12. When we first met Mark. But if you'll go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and look at verse 9, Paul tells Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very. Useful to me for ministry. Knowing he was about to have his head chopped off. Who did Paul want at his side? Well, he wanted Timothy. And he wanted John Mark. You see, this is the story, story of a restored deserter. I mean, what kind of privilege is that? 
Here's a guy who's not an apostle, not a prophet, not a pastor, not a teacher, not an evangelist, not a leader. He's never identified in any role other than being someone who could serve or assist or help. And pastors don't ever, please don't ever underestimate what God can do with helpers. As a young man, he was given the privilege of serving alongside the apostle Paul. He defected, he ran home to his mama. But years later, by the grace of God, he becomes so intimately associated with Paul, so loved by Paul, so trusted by Paul, that Paul would send him to the Colossian church on his own behalf. And then when Paul is facing death, the one person he asked to come in addition to Timothy is his most trusted, useful friend, Mark. Now, you're not surprised by that, are you? You're not surprised that the Lord would use people like that, that he would take Matthew, a tax collector, and let him write a an account of his son's life. He would take Luke, a Gentile, John, a son of thunder, and Mark, a defector, a deserter. Why did the Lord choose people like that to write the history of his son? Because that's the only kind of people there are for him to choose from. Sinful, unqualified people who have been made new by the blood of Jesus Christ. And every one of us that God honors to call into ministry have to thank him every day that he chooses people like that. Because if he didn't, none of us would be here today. So Mark is a gospel written about the sinless son of God by a very sinful man. A gospel written about the almighty Christ by a coward. It's a story of the righteous one written by a man in desperate need of grace. Let's pray. Father, I am so glad you use that kind of unqualified people to accomplish what you want done. And I'm glad you are patient with us. And you love us. And you care about us. And God, no matter who we are or where we serve or what we ever have the chance to do or not do, Father, help us to be faithful to the one who's called us to so hide our identity that his shines through brightly. We thank you and we love you, but only because you loved us first. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.